Chapter Thirteen of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen The Inadequate Fifteenth Amendment. The Fourteenth Amendment had been ratified in July, eighteen sixty eight, but Republicans found it inadequate because it did not specifically enfranchise Negroes. More than ever convinced that they needed the Negro vote in order to continue in power, they prepared to supplement it by a Fifteenth Amendment, which Susan hoped would be drafted to enfranchise women as well as Negroes. Immediately, through her Woman's Suffrage Association of America, she petitioned Congress to make no distinction between men and women in any amendment extending or regulating suffrage. She and Elizabeth Stanton also persuaded their good friends, Senator Pomeroy of Kansas and Congressman Julian of Indiana, to introduce in December 1868 resolutions providing that suffrage be based on citizenship, be regulated by Congress, and that all citizens, native or naturalized, enjoy this right without distinction of race, color, or sex. Before the end of the month, Senator Wilson of Massachusetts and Congressman Julian had introduced other resolutions to enfranchise women in the District of Columbia and in the territories. Even the New York Herald could see no reason why the experiment of woman suffrage should not be tried in the District of Columbia. To focus attention on woman suffrage at this crucial time, Susan, in January 1869, called together the first woman's suffrage convention ever held in Washington. Not only did it attract women from as far west as Illinois, Missouri, and Kansas, but Senator Pomeroy lent it importance by his opening speech, and through the detailed and respectful reporting of the New York world, and of Grace Greenwood, of the Philadelphia Press, it received nationwide notice. Congress, however, gave little heed to women's demands. The experiment of women's suffrage in the District of Columbia was not tried, and nothing came of the resolutions for universal suffrage introduced by Pomeroy, Julian, and Wilson. In spite of all Susan's efforts to have the word sex, added to the Fifteenth Amendment, she soon faced the bitter disappointment of seeing a version ignoring women submitted to the states for ratification. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The blatant omission of the word sex forced Susan and Mrs. Stanton to initiate an amendment of their own, a Sixteenth Amendment, and again Congressman Julian came to their aid, although he too regarded Negro suffrage as more immediately important and absorbing than suffrage for women. On March 15, 1869, at one of the first sessions of the newly elected Congress, 
he introduced an amendment to the constitution providing that the right of suffrage be based on citizenship without any distinction or discrimination because of sex this was the first federal woman's suffrage amendment ever proposed in congress opportunity to campaign for this amendment was now offered susan and elizabeth stanton as they addressed a series of conventions in ohio illinois wisconsin and missouri press notices were good a milwaukee paper describing susan as an earnest enthusiastic fiery woman ready apt witty and what a politician would call sharp radical in the strongest sense making radical everything she touches she found woman's suffrage sentiment growing by leaps and bounds in the west and western men ready to support a federal woman's suffrage amendment with a lighter heart than she had had in many a day and with new subscriptions to the revolution susan returned to new york she moved the revolution office to the first floor of the women's bureau a large four-story brownstone house at forty-nine east twenty-third street near fifth avenue which had been purchased by a wealthy new yorker mrs elizabeth phelps who looked forward to establishing a center where women's organizations could meet and where any woman interested in the advancement of her sex would find encouragement and inspiration susan's hopes were high for the women's bureau and in this most respectable fashionable and even elegant setting she expected her revolution in spite of its inflammable name to live down its turbulent past and win new friends and subscribers she made one last effort to resuscitate the american equal rights association writing personal letters to old friends urging that past differences be forgotten and that all rededicate themselves to establishing universal suffrage by means of the sixteenth amendment she was optimistic as she prepared for a convention in new york particularly as one obstacle to unity had been removed george francis train had voluntarily severed all connections with the revolution to devote himself to freeing ireland she soon found however that the misunderstandings between her and her old anti-slavery friends were far deeper than george francis train although he would for a long time be blamed for them the fifteenth amendment was still a bone of contention and the revolution's continued editorials against it widened the breach the fireworks were set off in the convention of the american equal rights association by stephen s foster who objected to the nomination of susan and mrs stanton as officers of the association because they had in his opinion repudiated its principles when asked to explain further he replied that not only had they published a paper advocating educated suffrage while the association stood for universal suffrage but that they had shown themselves unfit by collaboration with george francis train who ridiculed negroes and opposed their enfranchisement 
trying to pour oil on the troubled waters, Mary Livermore, the popular new delegate from Chicago, asked whether it was quite fair to bring up George Francis Train when he had retired from the revolution. To this, Stephen Foster sternly replied, if the revolution, which has so often endorsed George Francis Train, will repudiate him because of his course in respect to the Negroes' rights, I have nothing further to say. But they do not repudiate him. He goes out, but they do not cast him out. Of course we do not, Susan instantly protested. Mr. Foster then objected to the way Susan had spent the funds of the association, accusing her of failing to keep adequate accounts. This she emphatically denied, explaining that she had presented a full accounting to the trust fund committee, that it had been audited, and she had been voted $1,000 to repay her for the amount she had personally advanced for the work. Unwilling to accept her explanation, and calling it unreliable, he continued his complaints until interrupted by Henry Blackwell, who corroborated Susan's statement, adding that she had refused the $1,000 due her because of the dissatisfaction expressed over her management. Declaring himself completely satisfied with the settlement and confident of the purity of Susan's motives, even if some of her expenditures were unwise, Henry Blackwell continued, I will agree that many unwise things have been written in the Revolution by a gentleman who furnished part of the means by which the paper has been carried on. But that gentleman has withdrawn, and you— who know the real opinions of Miss Anthony and Mrs. Stanton on the question of Negro suffrage, do not believe that they mean to create antagonism between the Negro and woman question. To Susan's great relief, Henry Blackwell's explanation satisfied the delegates, who gave her and Mrs. Stanton a vote of confidence. Not so easily healed, however, were the wounds left by the accusations of mismanagement and dishonesty. The atmosphere was still tense, for differences of opinion on policy remained. Most of the old reliable workers stood unequivocally for the 15th Amendment, which they regarded as the crowning achievement of the anti-slavery movement and they heartily disapproved of forcing the issue of women's suffrage on Congress and the people at this time. Although they had been deeply moved by the suffering of Negro women under slavery, and had used this as a telling argument for emancipation, they now gave no thought to Negro women, who, even more than Negro men, needed the vote to safeguard their rights. Believing with the Republicans that one reform at a time was all they could expect, they did not want to hear one word about woman suffrage or a 16th Amendment until male Negroes were safely enfranchised by the 15th Amendment. Offering a resolution endorsing the 15th Amendment, Frederick Douglass quoted Julia Ward Howe as saying, I am willing that the Negro shall get the ballot before me. And he added, 
I cannot see how anyone can pretend that there is the same urgency in giving the ballot to woman as to the negro. Quick as a flash, Susan was on her feet, challenging his statements, and as the dauntless champion of woman debated the question with the dark-skinned fiery negro, the friendship and warm affection built up between them over the years occasionally shone through the sharp words they spoke to each other the old anti-slavery school says that woman must stand back declared susan that they must wait until male negroes are voters but we say if you will not give the whole loaf of justice to an entire people give it to the most intelligent first here she was greeted with applause and continued, If intelligence, justice, and morality are to be placed in the government, then let the question of women be brought up first and that of the Negro last. Mr. Douglas talks about the wrongs of the Negro, how he is hunted down, but with all the wrongs and outrages that he today suffers, he would not exchange his sex and take the place of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I want to know, shouted Frederick Douglass, if granting you the right of suffrage will change the nature of our sexes. It will change the pecuniary position of women, Susan retorted before the shouts of laughter had died down she will not be compelled to take hold of only such employments as man chooses for her lucy stone who so often in her youth had pleaded with susan and frederick douglas for both the negro and women now entered the argument she had matured but her voice had lost none of its conviction or its power to sway an audience disagreeing with douglas's assertion that Negro suffrage was more urgent than woman suffrage, she pointed out that white women of the North were robbed of their children by the law just as Negro women had been by slavery. This was balm to Susan's soul, but with Lucy's next words she lost all hope that her old friend would cast her lot wholeheartedly with women at this time. Woman has an ocean of wrongs, too deep for any plummet, Lucy continued, and the Negro, too, has an ocean of wrongs that cannot be fathomed. But I thank God for the Fifteenth Amendment, and hope that it will be adopted in every state. I will be thankful in my soul if anybody can get out of the terrible pit. I believe, she admitted, that the national safety of the government would be more promoted by the admission of women as an element of restoration and harmony than the other. I believe that the influence of woman will save the country before every other influence. I see the signs of the times pointing to this consummation. I believe that in some parts of the country women will vote for the President of these United States in 1872. Susan grew impatient as Lucy shifted from one side to the other, straddling the issue. Her own clear-cut approach, earning for her the reputation of always hitting the nail on the head, made Lucy's seem like temporizing. 
The men now took control, criticizing the amount of time given to the discussion of women's rights, and voted endorsement of the 15th Amendment. Nevertheless, a small group of determined women continued their fight, Susan declaring with spirit that she protested against the 15th Amendment because it was not equal rights and would put two million more men in the position of tyrants over two million women who until now had been the equals of the Negro men at their side. It was now clear to Susan and to the few women who worked closely with her that they needed a strong organization of their own and that it was folly to waste more time on the Equal Rights Association. Western delegates, disappointed in the convention's lack of interest in women's suffrage, expressed themselves freely. They had been sorely tried by the many speeches on extraneous subjects which cluttered the meetings, the heritage of a free speech policy handed down by anti-slavery societies. That Equal Rights Association is an awful humbug, exploded Mary Livermore to Susan. I would not have come on to the anniversary, nor would any of us, if we had known what it was. We supposed we were coming to a woman's suffrage convention. At a reception for all the delegates held at the Woman's Bureau at the close of the convention, this dissatisfaction culminated in a spontaneous demand for a new organization which would concentrate on woman's suffrage and the 16th Amendment. Alert to the possibilities, Susan directed this demand into concrete action by turning the reception temporarily into a business meeting. The result was the formation of the National Woman's Suffrage Association by women from 19 states, with Mrs. Stanton as president and Susan as a member of the executive committee. The younger women of the West, trusting the judgment of Susan and Mrs. Stanton, looked to them for leadership, as did a few of the old workers in the East. Ernestine Rose, always in the vanguard, Paulina Wright Davis, Elizabeth Smith Miller, Lucretia Mott, who, although holding no office in the new organization, gave it her support, Martha C. Wright, and Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who never wavered in her allegiance, Lucy Stone, who would have found it hard even to step into the Revolution office, did not attend the reception at the Women's Bureau or take part in the formation of the new women's suffrage organization. Aided and abetted by her new National Women's Suffrage Association, Susan continued her opposition in the Revolution to the 15th Amendment until it was ratified in 1870. So incensed was the Boston group by the Revolution's opposition to the 15th Amendment, so displeased was Lucy Stone by the formation of the National Woman Suffrage Association without consultation with her, one of the oldest workers in the field, that they began to talk of forming a National Woman Suffrage Organization of their own. They charged Susan with lust for power and autocratic control. 
mrs stanton they found equally objectionable because of her radical views on sex marriage and divorce expressed in the revolution in connection with the hester vaughan case they sincerely felt that the course of woman's suffrage would run more smoothly arouse less antagonism and make more progress without these two militants who were forever stirring things up and introducing extraneous subjects during these trying days of accusations animosity and rival factions mrs stanton's unwavering support was a great comfort to susan as was the joy of having a paper to carry her message in addition to all the responsibilities connected with publishing her weekly paper advertising subscriptions editorial policy and raising the money to pay the bills susan was also holding successful conventions in saratoga and newport where men and women of wealth and influence gathered for the summer she was traveling out to st louis chicago and other western cities to speak on woman's suffrage making trips to washington to confer with congressmen getting petitions for the sixteenth amendment circulated and through all this building up the national woman's suffrage association the revolution office became the rallying point for a forward-looking group of women many of whom contributed to the hard-hitting liberal sheet. Elizabeth Tilton, the lovely, dark-haired young wife of the popular lecturer and editor of The Independent, selected the poetry. Alice and Phoebe Carey gladly offered poems and a novel. And when Susan was away, Phoebe Carey often helped Mrs. Stanton get out the paper elizabeth smith miller gave money encouragement and invaluable aid with her translations of interesting letters which the revolution received from france and germany laura curtis bullard the heir to the dr winslow soothing syrup fortune who travelled widely in europe sent letters from abroad and took a lively interest in the paper another new recruit was lily devereux blake who was gaining a reputation as a writer and who soon proved to be a brilliant orator and an invaluable worker in the new york city suffrage group dr clements s lozier unfailingly gave her support and her calm assurance strengthened susan the wealthy paulina wright davis of providence rhode island who followed Parker Pillsbury as editor, when he felt obliged to resign for financial reasons, gave the paper generous financial backing. It was Mrs. Davis who brought into the fold the half-sister of Henry Ward Beecher, Isabella Beecher Hooker, a queenly woman, one of the elect of Hartford, Connecticut hoping to break down mrs hooker's prejudice against susan and mrs stanton which had been built up by new england suffragists mrs davis invited the three women to spend a few days with her after this visit mrs hooker wrote to a friend in boston i have studied miss anthony day and night for nearly a week 
she is a woman of incorruptible integrity and the thought of guile has no place in her heart in unselfishness and benevolence she is scarcely an equal and her energy and executive ability are bounded only by her physical power which is something immense sometimes she fails in judgment according to the standards of others but in right intentions never nor in faithfulness to her friends after attending a two days convention in newport engineered by her in her own fashion i am obliged to accept a most favorable interpretation of her which prevails generally rather than that of boston mrs stanton too was a magnificent woman i hand in my allegiance to both as leaders and representatives of the great movement from then on mrs hooker did her best to reconcile the boston and new york factions hoping to avert the formation of a second national woman suffrage organization End of chapter 13